Now, guess what your good children were doing? Isabella lay screaming at the further end of the room, shrieking as if witches were running red-hot needles into her. Edgar stood on the hearth, weeping silently. In the middle of the table sat a little dog, shaking its paw and yelping, which, from their mutual accusations, we understood they had nearly pulled in two between them. The idiots! That was their pleasure. The quarrel who should hold a heap of warm hair, and each began to cry because both, after struggling to get it, refused to take it. We laughed outright at the petted things. We did despise them. I'm Jonah Chester. I'm Clay Catlin, and you're listening to Animal Human. This show is a production of IU's College of Arts and Sciences and a proud part of the 2018 semester. Each episode, we talk with a different IU researcher to examine where we, as humans, belong in the animal kingdom. We also examine the interactions of humans and animals in art, literature, and science. In this episode, Jonah sits down with Dr. Ivan Kralkamp, a professor in the English department. Dr. Kralkamp researches animal representation in Victorian-era literature and how perceptions drawn from those representations impact our current perceptions of animals. I teach in the English department. I've been here since 2001. Um, My main area is Victorian British literature. So, you know, people like the Brontes, Dickens, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy. In your past works, you've written about the relationship between animals and humans. And I believe it's your most recent book, Minor Creatures, Persons, Animals, and the Victorian Novel. How did Victorians think about the animal-human relationship Yeah, part of what got me interested in the topic is that a lot of really important stuff went on in this period in Britain, particularly in terms of moving towards like modern ways of thinking about these topics. The very first animal welfare organization was the RSPCA, founded in 1824. The first modern, I'm talking about worldwide, anti-cruelty to animals bill was passed just before that, 1822. So this period, like 1820s, kind of marks the beginning of this new era. And then you actually get a bunch of legislation, different anti-cruelty acts. So sort of culminating in 1876, the Cruelty to Animals Act, which was basically um, aimed to regulate vivisection and experimentation on animals. The earlier legislation was mostly about beating animals, in uh, cattle or horses in, in the streets. So... 19th century Britain sort of innovated the idea of animal welfare politics or kind of like the the beginnings of what turned into what we now think of as, you know, animal rights discourse and advocacy. And, I mean, also notable, the the Victorians uh, were sort of famous for loving their pets. It was kind of cliche, a truism. Yeah, Victorian Britain was kind of known as a nation of pet lovers and of animal lovers. I mean, that's kind of how I got onto this topic where I was interested in some works by historians about animal advocacy. And it just seemed to me that literary scholars hadn't really thought so much about how these ideas turned up in the literature. So that's what got me onto it. I mean, I actually remember the first thing that really got me on this topic came from teaching Wuthering Heights, Emily Bronte's novel, which uh, is one I like to teach a lot. And I just started to notice that there's stuff about animals all over that novel. And it seemed very important and, you know, had been pretty little remarked. I mean, you know, people would sort of mention it in passing. But to me, it started to seem quite central to the way that novel works. So to give a couple examples, there's a key scene where, uh, I mean, many people listening might know that novel. You know, it's, of course, about the sort of impossible love between Catherine and Heathcliff, who are 
kind of step siblings. And there's this key scene where they're sort of like wandering free in the moors, which is depicted as this kind of natural paradise. And then they come up to this house called Thrushcross Grange, which is sort of this wealthy neighbors a few miles away in the moors. And they peek through the window. And what they see is, um, maybe I'll actually read a, a quotation. They see the kids. Uh, okay, I'll read this. Now, guess what your good children were doing? Isabella lay screaming at the further end of the room, shrieking as if witches were running red-hot needles into her. Edgar stood on the hearth, weeping silently. In the middle of the table sat a little dog, shaking its paw and yelping, which, from their mutual accusations, we understood they had nearly pulled in two between them. The idiots... That was their pleasure, to quarrel who should hold a heap of warm hair, and each began to cry because both, after struggling to get it, refused to take it. We laughed outright at the petted things. We did despise them. So that's Heathcliff recounting the story. So I just got very interested in that passage in particular, and I know it was something I I talked about, my my students and I talked about. And then uh, the family, the Lintons, send out a bulldog who bites Catherine, and there's just a whole lot going on there about the different kinds of pets, and questions of the categories of you know, which pets are the sort of guard dogs, but which are the sort of the lap dogs. And Heathcliff and Catherine sort of define themselves against these kids who they call petted things. So it's almost as if the children are sort of themselves like coddled lap dogs or something like that. And then later, Heathcliff, I think, in many ways gets defined as as almost like an animal in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, he's actually first... The father finds him lost in the streets of Liverpool and the scene of his discovery. Um, I mean, it's often been discussed in the last 20 years in relation to race. People talk about how Heathcliff is kind of racialized. He, he's found in the, the harbor at Liverpool, which has symbolic associations with the slave trade. But I argue that just as much as those sorts of uh, links to slavery and race, Heathcliff is linked to animals, to animality. He seems sort of like a lost pet. And then he quite explicitly compares himself to a vivisector. He becomes very cruel. And um, he talks about the pleasure he takes in pain and that he would enjoy vivisecting the the object of his cruelty. So anyway, just to try to sum up, I mean, this novel, which you know is one of the most important Victorian novels, I think is just completely saturated with this language of pets, animals, and sort of, you know, defining a kind of continuum of different kinds of animals and also a continuum of different ways to treat animals, like from the most cruel, like vivisectors or those who torture animals, to the most kind, those who, you know, take care of them. So why were writers in Victorian-era England drawn so heavily to using this kind of vibrant symbolism and kind of attaching this ideology to dogs? What do you think drew them to that initially? Why, in Bronte's work, you gave the hounds as an example. Uh, I'm sure there are other animals, but it seems like they have a particular love for dogs, especially in literature. Why is that? Well, yeah, dogs are important. Um, the, the anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss described dogs as metonymical human beings. They're sort of part human. We sort of symbolically move them over from the category of natural, pure animal into a status of being almost like human beings, uh, where dogs, you know, live in our house. We, We often give them names. I mean, this is also true of pets more generally, but maybe especially true of dogs. You know, we often sort of humanize them, think of them as having personalities. And, you know, this is perhaps especially true in the Victorian period, where I think that characterization of dogs is sort of 
metonymical or, or partly human creatures is, is especially pronounced. So another big topic I'm interested in in the book is what happens when you try to make an animal a character or the question of whether an animal can be a character in a book and what sort of character they are. I mean, that's what the title comes from, where I think animals often are sort of minor characters in a way where they might briefly uh, attain something like character status. But it's always understood that an animal can be sort of like thrown back into the mass of all those other animals who you don't pay any attention to and, you know, can kill or, or eat. I mean, dogs are, you're not allowed to eat dogs in England. Um, that's a big dividing line. You know, the animals yeah. that can be eaten versus those that can't. Uh, the animals that can be sort of used for material and those that can't. So dogs, for the most part, as a species, in, in England at least, are, are given this, this special status where, they're, for the most part, they're supposed to be protected but so as a result, they're, they're quite interesting the, the way they act in novels where they sort of sometimes slide into the base of literary characters and sometimes fall back out. So you, you mentioned can animals be a character? And from what I'm understanding from what you're saying here is that they can sort of become a malleable character. They can jump to the, to the forefront of the novel when it's necessary or they can fall to the background if they're not needed anymore. Is that, is that a fair summation yeah, yeah. of what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah, that's well put. And I don't know, like one example that I, I think of is in Thomas Hardy's novel, Far From the Madding Crowd. There's a scene where a character is a woman is nearly starving to death, wandering, has been sort of cast out, and she's, she's about to collapse and possibly die. And this dog shows up uh, sort of out of nowhere and helps guide her, and she basically like leans on this dog, and the dog sort of takes her to a, a place that will take her in. And then later, she and she falls unconscious like at the door for this brief moment. And Thomas Hardy was very interested in animals, and, and he was his second wife actually was heavily involved in animal welfare politics, more so than the Brontes and Dickens. For Hardy, it was kind of almost like an explicit political topic. So in this chapter, the dog is very much like a character. He's kind of like heroic, and he, you know, he saves this character, Fanny Robin. Um, and then when she becomes conscious, she asks the person who took her in, like, what happened to that dog? And the guy says, like, oh, yeah, that dog, I, I saw it outside. I, I stoned it away. And to me, that's very sort of paradigmatic. Like Hardy kind of gives the dog this moment of heroism, but of course it's not going to be able to continue as a character. It's, you know, fundamentally something to be chased away. So I think that's sort of paradigmatic. And then, you know, certain animals do better than that, but that kind of suggests like the fate of many animals in, in novels. So aside from a, a few instances, it seems like most animal representation, specifically dogs in the Victorian era by authors is in a protagonistic role. Is that fair? I mean, there, there are antagonists, like you mentioned the hounds in uh, Withering Heights, I believe it was. But for the most part, they seem to, they seem to kind of portray what humans seek to be we see that rolling into the the animal and dog protagonists in the literature is is that a fair assessment yeah i mean i think uh, it's often thought that you know dogs are very you use the word malleable which is a good term for it they're very influenced by their owners so you sometimes see dogs that are um you know savage attack dogs because they've been trained that way there's a sense you know dogs can sometimes almost be an extension of their master and you know can become cruel but yeah, for the most part, it's felt that if they are made to be cruel, it's because of, of human influence. So you mentioned that animal cruelty legislation really gets its start in Victorian England. How did it spread out after that? Yeah, there's sort of a parallel history in the U.S. I mean, one thing that's very interesting in both Britain and the U.S. is that 
there's a surprising number of links between ideas about and legislation trying to prevent cruelty to children and cruelty to animals. There's sort of like a conversation between those two movements. And a case can be made that some of the first legislation trying to bar beating of children and so on was actually influenced by the slightly earlier anti-animal cruelty legislation. So that's a very interesting back and forth. You know, you could also, if you're looking more globally, I mean, there are certainly traditions outside the West, like Hinduism, having to do with, um, you know, respect for animals. And some of the earliest vegetarian activists in England were actually soldiers who came back from India and had been influenced by Hindu traditions there. Interesting. Kind of pivoting to one of the other major topics I wanted to uh, discuss today. On your bio, you describe your most recent research as, quote, Considering animals as objects of sympathy and enmity, as companions and cohabitants, as subjects of experiment, as minor or vulnerable characters, and as figures of radical alterarity, unquote. Can you expand upon these ideas? Specifically, I'm interested in the radical alterarity aspect of it and, and maybe break them down into an easily digestible concept for our listeners. It's actually alterity, meaning like a radical otherness, like extreme otherness. So it sort of goes back to that point I was making about points that people like Derrida or Giorgio Agamben make that, you know, the animal is in, in, in Western thought and Western thinking philosophy is thought to be both within the human and something that has to be expelled from the human. So the human sort of defines itself by finding the animal within and casting it out. So there's this very unstable process, sort of, you could call it like deconstructive, where the animal is the thing that is both, you know, completely opposite to the human, but is also understood to be in the human. So it's this this process that's sort of never ending, where you always have to prove that you're, you're not an animal. Derrida has this line about the, quote, deranged theatrics of the holy other that they call animal. I mean, uh, his point there is partly that he has this whole argument about the sort of outrageousness and stupidity, basically, of the term animal. He's saying um, the superabundance of non-human creatures. So, you know, there's a million different kinds of creatures in the world. It's, this is Derrida's words, is linguistically subsumed into a single term, the animal, a catch-all concept, including all the living things that man does not recognize as his fellows, his neighbors, or his brothers. Part of his argument is that the, the very term animal is kind of ridiculous because it just like, you know, it's so overgeneral. It's sort of a mark of human arrogance that it thinks it can, you know, have just one word for everything that is not human. So that's part of what Derrida means by radical alterity, that the, the animal is sort of that quality, the, those beings that need to be defined as the most other. And that's why, you know, I early, earlier mentioned the question of whether Heathcliff is sort of racialized or animalized. And I think those two things are often linked in interesting ways. There can be kind of parallel interrelating and overlapping logics of dehumanization where like in British culture the the non-white person is sort of otherized is defined as as other as as less than human and so is the animal and so it's a little bit of a chicken or egg question like is the racially other kind of defined in relation to the animal other or, or vice versa but I think they're connected and, you know, in some ways it goes back to Darwin. It's kind of like like Sigmund Freud famously argued that before his own revolution in thinking, there had been two great human revolutions in thought, the Copernican that made human beings realize that they weren't the center of the universe, and the Darwinian made human beings understand that they weren't at the pinnacle of creatures. And that's part of what Derrida is talking about, that there's almost like this outrage at the thought that human beings could be animal 
So part of what it, defining the animal as radically as defining radical alterity or radical otherness is sort of almost like reassuring yourself. Well, that's not me. That's completely different from me. But, you know, then, of course, it gets complicated by pet keeping and the fact that we also want to treat animals well and we, you know, we want to bring some animals into our house. I mean, it might be simpler if you just, if human beings simply hated and feared animals, maybe in some state of nature, kind of like, okay, the animal is the thing that you're, you're always worried is going to bite you or kill you. But, you know, if you look at Darwin, Darwin's writing on domestication is very interesting because he basically says, you know, you can go back as far as you want and you can't really find any human culture that does not involve domestication of animals. I mean, I think for Darwin, this was like an interesting puzzle that I think he expected to find evidence of human beings before domestication, but he decides that it doesn't really exist. Human beings always define themselves as human by choosing which animals would be brought into the human circle and, you know, going back to like those dogs that may be allowed to approach the fire and feed scraps and domesticate and um, allow at least partial access to your homes. How does animal representation in the Victorian novel differ from other literature representations of animals at this time? What are the major differences and I suppose similarities as well? between Victorian novels of the early 19th century and, let's say, an American writer of the early 19th century? I mean, first of all, I, I haven't really tried to study it as thoroughly in the American context. I mean, let's see. I mean, one, so I mean, I think there's a lot of common ground. American British culture, you know, influenced one another strongly in this period. So it can be a little bit of a fallacy to see them as, you know, totally separate. I mean, one thing I think both cultures share and I do think is there's a similar sort of veneration of um, domesticity, the, the so-called cult domestic ideology, the cult of the home, and the, the idea that the role of the, the good, proper woman is to sort of oversee the home and create the right kind of domestic space. I think this connects a lot to pet keeping. I mean, it's kind of one of my arguments is that when we think about 19th century domesticity, and I do think this probably applies to America as well as England, um, the pet plays an important role. Part of the way you define a good home is showing that you sort of know where to draw the line. Like you don't let the wrong animals in, but you do let some animals in. So like a one historian writes that, that the child and the pet were both family constituting beings. There's a lot of overlap there. I mean, one difference is in, a, in America, you get some things, I mean, there's versions of this in Victorian writing too, but someone like Jack London has a sort of special status in America where, you know, the whole American obsession with the frontier and with, you know, men going out into the wild and sort of confronting savagery. I mean, there certainly are versions of that in like British imperial writing. But I do think that people who are interested in animals in American literature often think a lot about like the, the, the dogs in Jack London novels. And it's a, l a little bit unique, I think. How has the Victorian representation of animals in literature trickled down to us now? How does it influence the way we view animals today? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways we've sort of inherited these ideas. You know, I mean, British Victorian fiction certainly was hugely influential on 20th century American culture. Um, and all of these novels continue to play a pretty important role in the educational system. I, I certainly think a lot of the ideas I investigate in this book are kind of still with us or versions of them, like the same sorts of dilemmas about pet keeping and meat eating. I mean, that is one difference is that I think that a much more radical animal rights politics has developed where you get like um, 
I mean, there was like the strong anti-vivisection movement emerged in the 1870s and 80s in England. But, you know, in later 20th century Britain and America and 21st century, you get, in some cases, quite violent, radical animal rights action of a new kind. The other big difference is that, you know, the rise of um, industrialized meat production, I mean, that's something you can sort of see the origins of it in the 19th century. And in something like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, that, you know, famously shows what looks in retrospect, like the sort of beginning of the 20th century industrialized meat system. So I do think a lot of the ethical questions have just gotten more intense, where, you know, they've simply become routinized and multiplied. A lot of different kinds of pushback on that, like vegetarianism. I, I don't really think veganism existed in the 19th century. I'm actually not sure about that. But, you know, uh, the fact that, I mean, I have teenage daughters and like veganism is mainstream now. You know, you could say that some of these, the various issues have sort of been sharpened and intensified. I do also think that for us today, the disaster of, of climate change and global warming, it, it kind of shadows everything. So, you know, I've even seen arguments that saying that, well, you know, Keeping dogs is kind of problematic because the meat used for their food is the production of that dog food is quite harmful to the environment. So there's complicated questions there that I think were fairly oblivious to or entirely so in the 19th century. And then there's cloning. Uh, You know, there's new things that have emerged. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of a whole new set of ethical dilemmas that we have to face now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Bioethics as, as a discipline. Um, so things, some things are the same. Some things have, have gone in new directions. This show has been a project of the Indiana University College of Arts and Sciences semester. Thank you to Dr. Kralkamp for taking time out of his day to talk with me. Editing, hosting, and mixing for this episode was provided by Jonah. On the next episode, Clay speaks with Dr. Jonathan Crystal. Dr. Crystal researches how animals, particularly rats, think and learn, as well as how they're affected by degenerative neurological issues. Dr. Crystal uses this information to better understand how those neurological issues affect humans. He hopes to use his research to learn how to alleviate disorder cognition in people suffering from diseases such as Alzheimer's. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.